One of the things that I really like about Bitcoin, and I think is perhaps its most its its strongest attribute of all, is the confidence that we have that the monetary system is not going to change. Now, if you're talking about a fork which would change to proof of stake, which would inflate the supply, which would do all kinds of other things, then you have removed what I believe to be it's one of its major selling points that I think a lot, lot of people, even if they don't appreciate it when they first get in, certainly come to appreciate um, over time. The Bitcoin hardware wallet space can be a little confusing, but I'm here to tell you that the most important part of your decision needs to be the ethos of the team that's developing the hardware wallet. That's why I look to foundation devices. This team has proven over and over that they're committed to freedom of their users. They're committed to the sovereignty of their users. The Passport Bitcoin wallet from Foundation Devices is a beautiful, air-gapped, open-source, trust-minimized hardware wallet. And what do I mean by trust-minimized? I mean you never have to plug this into your computer. When you use other Bitcoin hardware wallets, you have to connect them to your computer in order to use them. You scan QR codes, you use an SD card. There's a number of ways that bypass the need to connect directly to your computer. And the whole point is to minimize trust. And for a limited time, use promo code BLEK to get three months of privacy-friendly IVPN service with the purchase of a passport, foundationdevices.com. Not enough people understand everything that you can do with BitRefill. Come to bitrefill.com. Take a look at their gift cards, phone refills, eSIMs. Let's take a quick look at the gift cards. Anything you can really imagine for day-to-day life, Uber, Instacart, Amazon, Apple, Walmart, the list goes on and on and on. You can buy any of these with crypto. You don't have to provide your name. You don't have to provide your driver's license. You don't have to provide any of that. As long as you have crypto, you can buy here. Let's say I want to buy an Instacart gift card, $50. Add to cart. Let's say I want to check out. Enter promo code Chris Black and you'll get an extra 10% back in extra Bitcoin rewards. That's about $5 worth of rewards on this $50 gift card. You can check out with any of these cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, on the Lightning Network if you want, Ethereum, USDC, Tether, Binance, Litecoin, Dogecoin. It goes on and on and on. You can buy gift cards. You can buy eSIMs for your phone in all different countries. You can buy refills for your prepaid phone service. It's all here. BitRefill.com. Use promo code ChrisBleck. BitRefill.com. You may have seen me upload this photo to Twitter the other day and wondered what I was so excited about. It's my brand new Ronin Dojo Tonto Bitcoin Full Node. The only way you can use Bitcoin properly, the way it was meant to be used and stayed truly private, is to run your own full node. Have your own copy of the blockchain on your own full node. And when you send a transaction, you're using your full node and not somebody else's so that nobody else can associate your IP, your UTXOs, or anything back to you. When you use a full node like the Tonto, you are using Bitcoin as privately as you can. Go to ronandojo.io, use promo code BLEK to get $10 off your purchase of a Tonto full node. ronandojo.io Craig Raw Sparrowalk today. Um, very grateful to him. Craig, do you have a Ronin Dojo? 
I don't, don't Chris. I'm, uh, I actually Jesus. tend to need to tinker around uh, myself, so I need to compile things and uh, try different versions. So for me, it actually makes more sense to have a kind of a bare bones device that I can adjust as I need. Do you think that it it's like a sacrifice of... Uh... In what ways do you think we're, we're making a trade-off by getting a Ronin Dojo as opposed to building my own node? Uh, I don't think you're making much of a trade-off at all, to be honest. I think I, I'm there's trade-offs. No, there man. No, 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 no. I want to know the hardcore view because <laughs> I mean, I know I have to trust. I have to trust the software they put on it, right? When I receive it, that it has software. I could check it myself, um, which I should. But I haven't yet. I just plugged it in and it's going. I mean, I just received the device and I plugged it in. Like, I didn't check it. Um, I trust the guy that sent it to me. Um, but I should have checked it because it could be anything, right? It could be doing anything. Somebody wanted to attack that thing and, and replace the software. Yeah, And then I, once I connect my Sparrow wallet to it, by then I should know that I, it's, it's okay. I didn't build it myself. Right, I should be on top of things, and I, I'm I'm falling behind on a few things when I trust like the developer or you know this goes for like closed source stuff too, especially. But with open source stuff, at least we can check it ourselves. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I guess in an ideal sense, you want to have compiled everything your, yourself, uh, you know, all the way down to your kernel. Um, there's obviously levels to which people can practically address these these things. You know, practically we do the best we can, and there is a certain amount of trust. We just try to minimize that trust. So, you know, when yeah. it comes to the likes of one of these kind of pre-built node packages, you know, you you do kind of look at well, who's built building it? You know, what is what is the team behind it? What is their sort of ethics? Um, and you you do place a certain amount of trust in that for sure. Um, when you if you build it yourself. You'll obviously place less less trust, but it's certainly not a binary thing. There's always some degree of trust involved um, because you know you just you just are never going to be able to read every line of code going all the way down. So um, yeah. you know you just have to choose where you want to jump off the boat, if you will. Um, and I think it's always good to aspire to get further down the stack and to do more of the things yourself and to minimize your trust further. But the most important thing is obviously to get your own node in the first place. So it should not be a case of, well, I want to wait until I can compile everything myself before I'm going to get a node at all. Um, you need to kind of start on that journey as this kind of would be my message. Yeah. Like they say, like, don't let, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Right. That's it. Yeah. So absolutely. it's like, if you're getting a node, it's a step in the right direction. But, you know, people use the same argument with regard to to uh, self-custody because and I have a problem with that you know as far as like people saying it's okay to use custody as a first step as long as you're buying Bitcoin it's okay to use custody and then go to self-custody later when you when you feel better about it when you're more confident about it um, but actually before we even get into that I should reference who you are and what you do we just jumped in but uh, you created Sparrow Wallet and Sparrow Wallet, for anybody who doesn't know, is probably, in my opinion, the best uh, Bitcoin wallet for you to use on your on your computer. It's available. It's available PC, Mac, Linux. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, it's 
it's the most versatile tool that I've used. I mean, it's, it's, you know, probably the strongest competitor to Electrum, right? And Electrum has been around for years and it's the one we've used to, um, you know, sync up with our hardware wallets and our, our mobile wallets and stuff like that and use it as a node, um, as a Electrum. No, I don't even know all the, the right terminology all the time. All I know is that I can use Sparrow Wallet with my hardware wallets, with my uh, Samurai Wallet, you know, my Android phone, and I can use it standalone on my computer um, to do some amazing stuff. But uh, what inspired you to jump into this? And when did you jump into this project? I was really, um, you know, coming to a point in my life where I'd been doing a lot of managing um, of people and businesses for a long period of time. And I just, you know, I'm at heart a creator, uh, somebody who likes to build things. And um, I really just had this, this very deep-seated need to get back into that. So I was at a point in my life where that became possible, that I could take some time out from purely commercial activities and kind of really focus on just building again. Um, and then a sort of alongside of that, I had this this kind of uh, long period of um, researching and understanding and diving down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, which had been going on since around 2013, and just eventually got to the point where I just really had to build some something in it. And uh, Sparrow was really what came out of all of that. It didn't actually begin as a kind of a, a goal, well, I'm going to go and create a wallet. Um, it actually began as a with more sort of modest intent. I began it initially as a transaction editor, which is a rather strange thing to build, but I just kind of wanted to start off with something which was, in my view at that time, relatively achievable. And it was only really later on that I realized, well, you have to have some way to create a transaction. And of course, then the wallet kind of came after that. So, you know, it was really just um, wanting to build something which was better than what was out there. Um, you know, I was mm. trying to create a multi-vendor, multi-signature wallet in Electrum at the time. And I was getting down to actually editing the JSON wallet file to try and create the setup that I wanted. And it was just really didn't feel good. It didn't feel like a good um, self-custody, long-term sort of cold storage um, solution. So I really felt that there was a, a need for it. And I built it really for myself as as the kind of primary user. Um, and it's kind of, I think that that still is, is largely true. Um, there are obviously features in Sparrow that, you know, I don't myself need today, but who knows, perhaps someday I might. Um, so it's really um, just been a journey of, of understanding what it is that I'm building, understanding who I'm building it for, um, and as my own needs have, have sort of evolved, so I have been able to use that input um, into what I've tried to, to to create. And was the so the idea initially wasn't to build an open source uh, project that would be used by many. It was just to build for yourself, and then it sort of at some point evolved into something that became useful to other people. Yes, and I think that's true. To be fair, for many open source projects you know i think mm. it's difficult when you are just sitting there and you know dreaming up some idea that it will become as large as it is today um, and i think there's probably many open source developers who have a similar story to relate 
But no, it certainly didn't begin, begin there. Um, I'm very grateful that today I get to work on something which um, has the impact that Sparrow Wallet has. And, you know, that really wakes, you know, gets me out of bed every day and um, makes my life certainly more meaningful than it would otherwise be. So uh, I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing, but I didn't, I didn't foresee it um, at the start for sure. That's what I was wondering, like what inspires you? Cause you, you're like kind of a low key dude, right? And there's a lot of people using the product now. It's grown into something bigger. And is the project like, are you the only developer? There's contributors too, right? No, I'm the only dev. Um, there are certainly contributors in terms of ideas. Um, so, you know, a lot of the features in Sparrow, a lot of the tweaking and the tuning that you see is just the community coming forward and saying, what about this? It would be great if it could do that. Mm -hmm. There's there's a huge amount of that in there. Um, so I'm very grateful to all of those ideas that I've had over the years, which have just come out of other users, other Bitcoiners really just coming forward and, and asking for certain things. Um, but there are no um, other, you know, devs. There is, I've, I've got a, Telegram group, which uh, handles the support needs. And there's a few great admins on there who, you know, I really um, am very grateful for, who put in a huge amount of time to answer questions at all times of the day and night, all days. Um, so, you know, it's really just, you know, I would like to think, you know, what an open source project can be, um, just people coming to, to, to get together together. But from a a, a purely development point of view, um, it is just just me, and that's kind of how I want it to be. Um, and there's many different ways of many different pros and cons, should I say, of going at it. You can build a team, you can do various things, but um, this is the way that I wanted to do it. And uh, so far, it seems to be working out. What kind of what kind of licenses on the software? So it is uh, the Apache software license, which is very similar in, in sort of intent to the MIT license that Bitcoin Core uses. So it's kind of the same license. The Apache is is a little bit more verbose, um, which I which I like. I guess <laughs> kind of spells it out a little bit more that uh, what the sort of warranty limits are. But um, mm -hmm. other than that, it's pretty similar to the MIT. So it can it can be utilized. It can be um forked for um non-profit uses is that how that works but if it's for profit it's against the license no that would be the gpl so it's it's okay. not that kind of far left licensing that um that oh, okay. some open source projects have no this is a very permissive license you can kind of take the code and do most things with it um it's it's not it's not specifically trying to limit you to stay in an open source world. Okay. Yeah, I'm always curious how how um people come to those decisions, you know, as far as like should um you know, if somebody comes along and decides to take your code and you've been so generous with the license, you know, you're putting it out there for the world to see, for the world to use. You're not trying to make money off of it, although I I have questions about how Whirlpool works in a sec, but um you know, you're not trying to create this glossy package software um that you're going to sell you put it out there your hard work you're, i'm sure you're you know you're putting more work into it than you're getting paid for but then somebody else could come along and sort of borrow it take it and then sell it um, or find a way to monetize it um how do you decide because for me like right off the bat i would be like i want to 
I want to prevent that from happening. But you made a decision to let that happen. So how do you reconcile that in your head? And would you feel okay if somebody did that? Well, it has actually happened. Uh, there is a some other coin um, who has taken it and has used mm -hmm. the code. Um, you know, obviously a sort of a Bitcoin clone. Um, yeah, you know, I, for for me, it's it's about let's create a true open source project and see where it goes. You know, that that is that's the mission that I'm here to to achieve. Um, you know, it's it. It, who knows where it ends up? You know, to be honest, Chris, I'm I'm just on a journey, um, like we all are. But I'm I'm on a journey with this, and I don't know where it's going to end up. I, I'm not sure. All that I know is that you know I think it's providing value in the world today. Um, I think that that uh, it it's it's acts in small some small part to move Bitcoin forward, um, and that's enough for me today. Um, if somebody takes the code, forks it, and tries to do something else with it. It depends who it is, but I suspect there would be a community reaction to it, um, because you know, you know, today at least I think the the principles of open source are well defended within the Bitcoin community. Now, of course, somebody might try and take it to do something other than Bitcoin, but you know, how much I really care about that? Not a huge amount. Um, so. Uh, it's for me, you know, if somebody else tries to take it and kind of rebrand it, I suspect the Bitcoin community would react to that. How much we'd have to have to see, but, um, that's, that's what I, I would guess would happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky world. There's so many disputes in the space. Some of them are petty and some of them are real, you know, over open source, and like, what is open source? Ledger just claimed to open source their um, their hardware, and then it turned out it wasn't really open source. You know, it's it's just visible, I guess. I forget what they call it. Um, you can see it, but you can't really do anything with it. Um, so it's interesting to get different people's takes on it. I think that's, um, but it sounds like you've been very generous, and it sounds like, I mean, that's the vibe I get from you is that you're very genuine in the space and that you want to do the work you want to contribute uh and you you haven't shown any signs of being somebody who's out to find a way to just grift or try to make money off other people's backs or rent seek or anything like that which is you know admirable i think um but one of the things that makes uh that makes sparrow stand out against electrum are the privacy features um so, so what inspired you to go in that direction? Like, what's your history with privacy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's really, I think, you know, I was lucky enough to kind of um, uh, be, I guess, listening to the right people at the right time. Um, you know, so many years ago, almost before Sparrow began, you know, I I, I sort of tuned into the right kind of people who were talking about these these things and. Uh, that just kind of gave me an appreciation for um, what privacy was, you know, because uh, as I'm sure you're aware, Chris, most people don't even think of it. And I think that that's kind of to go back to the early days, that's where it starts, right? You have to actually be listening to somebody and kind of um, hearing what they're saying about, about it. Why should we care? And then, you know, as you sort of get further down, you realize that it, to to actually have privacy on Bitcoin is 
really just seeking um, the default that we're all used to today, by and by and large. You know, we're sort of used to having bank accounts where people can't just see what's going on. They can't just see what you spend your money on, how much you receive every month. Uh, you know, that's not normal. That's not a normal societal thing. And yet with Bitcoin and an open transparent blockchain, it obviously is. So it just comes back to saying, well, we just want to get to at least the default of what we have and what we're used to. So I, I don't see it at all as something un unusual or some, something, you know, that we are reaching beyond um, to be, you know, uh, secret or somehow um, nefarious. We're just seeking what we're used to, what we've grown up with, what, you know, what is the default in our lives. And these privacy tools are helping you achieve that on an open blockchain. So that's that, that's the kind of backstory of kind of why um, I got into it and what I think about it today. Who were those people that were inspiring you back then when you started? Um, so certainly Matt Adele, um, you know, has been a strong campaigner in the in the space for a long, long time. Uh, there's also Max Tannehill. Um, who's been a long-time supporter of the project and one of the admins that I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, the, the list goes on. I mean, there's, there's many others, but um, certainly, you know, those, those two names um, are definitely ones that come, come to mind as sort of reasoned arguers for why we need to be concerned about these things. Yeah. I mean, you were saying it's about, it's, I mean, I say the same thing and I believe it. It's about dignity, right? Like privacy is just, we just want to be able to um, transact in private, not have everybody know what we're doing all the time. That's not like, it's not like we're breaking any law. Like if I'm buying a can of soup or if I'm buying a magazine, there's no reason that 20,000 people need to be able to, to know that I did that or see that transaction. Um, but I guess the problems begin, and I, I think most of the time that's fine. And with bank accounts, you get that level of privacy at least. But the problems start when the government or a government has trouble seeing what you're doing. And for the past 20 plus years, um, that's become a bigger issue, right? So a lot of the tech we're talking about does give you privacy on that level, you know? So what do you think about the, the sort of the differences between the two levels of privacy and, and how do you think about that when you're doing your work? Um, Chris, do you mean privacy from the government um, when you talk about the two, two levels? Well, I guess what I'm talking about, the two levels are privacy, period, right? And then privacy from everyone except the government, which is sort of becoming the acceptable legal standard, you know? I, I think more and more as time goes on, we're seeing it with a lot of the stuff that's going on on Ethereum and in some other places where it gets to that point where, okay, and tornado cash, that whole thing. I'm not sure how much of that you followed, but the whole idea is privacy is okay until 
you're private from the government, at which point it becomes not okay because then the government can't see whether or not you're a criminal and they presume you're you're guilty until they can prove that you're innocent, right? So the, those are the two levels that I'm talking about. Does that, does that enter your mind at any point with the work you're doing? Um, yes. So, you know, I, th I think that, you know, whether you are how concerned or how how worried you are about this is often a function of where in the world you live. You know, I, I live in a country which doesn't have the, a government with the greatest track record, at least not the government um, in place today. And certainly the default view of the citizens around where I live is that they would be very against having um, the government having view of their funds, you know, by just just um, by default, if you will, without a without a certainly without a court warrant or what have you. So, you know, I, I think it's it's you know one shouldn't expect. I know that the U.S. view is a bit different. I know that the U.S. view is is you know by default you know kind of more trusting of the government. And obviously, I'm not referring to Bitcoiners here, but rather kind of the sort of broad broad view. Um, but you know, I, I don't think one should assume that the entire world is is kind of okay with the government having view of everything that you uh, receive and spend. Um, that's not, um, I think, something which is which is true. So you know, I kind of I'm building for a global world um, and one where there are plenty of governments around the world who even the most left U.S. citizen would consider, you know, privacy from that particular government to be a good thing. Um, that's that's what I think ultimately, uh, you know, the ideal is. Um, you're trying to create a tool which allows individuals, no matter where they live, to be able to save uh, in a currency which has the potential of holding value over time and which allows them to effectively hide their funds not only from people around them who might try to steal steal it, but from the government itself who might do the same. So it's 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 an empowering technology for the individual, and that's kind of how I think about it in terms of my my work. I think that it's it's absolutely um, reasonable for such a technology to exist in the, in this world. In fact, you know, I would argue that in the struggle between you know. Um, totalitarian control versus anarchy um, it's definitely pulling towards the anarchy side but it's not it's not trying to be anarchist it's just trying to give individuals the tools to be able to save to be able to transact um, in a world where those things are getting harder and harder to do and for many people you know they've had very little ability to do it at all yeah it's it's interesting because it's I hear what you're saying. You're saying because you're living and developing in a, a country that's not the U.S. Do you do you say what country it is, or do you rather rather not? Say? Yeah, yeah. I I live in South Africa. Okay, I was going to guess based on the accent. I'm pretty good with accents. Um, but the idea is that you live and work and build in South Africa. You distribute a product globally. But, you know, you're basically under the jurisdiction of, of South Africa. 
Um, so the US or the EU or Australia or whoever else wouldn't have any jurisdiction over the work you're doing. And it's interesting that because you're developing the way you're developing open source and organically and, and not sure if you're generating a profit or if you have a company or anything like that, but um, there's other there's other developers in this space, um, mostly outside the Bitcoin ecosystem, I guess, like Ethereum, especially, and, and others um, that are doing the same thing, but they are super conscious of the way that they're going to be viewed by the US and the EU, you know, with regard to banking and with, with regard to um, regulators and, and, and stuff like that, to the point where they're blocking like US citizens from accessing their website. And they're, they're even some of them are even blocking VPNs now to block US citizens from using VPNs to access their tools, because they're afraid of, you know, what kind of crackdown could come or, or what what effect it could have on their business if they're attacked by, you know, the, the Department of Treasury or OFAC or whatever it might be. But it sounds like this kind of stuff like, are you even aware of this kind of stuff and you've chosen to not really think about it or it doesn't even enter your radar as, as a open source developer in South Africa? Uh, so the, the first thing is Sparrow is, as I said before, a very much an open source project. It's not a business. I did not set it up that way. Uh, and I do not intend it for it to become a business. So I'm, I'm not motivated by commercial concerns. And I understand very much the effect of commercial concerns uh, having run businesses before you know i, I and i've you know i'm still involved in certain business businesses and that i have founded in the past and you know i can i can you know attest with a great deal of of experience you know how it can just have a chilling effect if you will on what you do um, because you are concerned about how it might be perceived in future let alone how it is perceived today so I very much do understand, understand that, but I'm just here creating a, a, some, some code which I put out there and is used by others. I don't run any servers that um, people use to transact with. In fact, the only server that I run is the documentation website for sparrowwallet.com and a BDC pay server instance to accept donations. So those, that is the only servers that I run. So if somebody downloads Sparrow, which is a static piece of code, or even compiles it them, themselves, I have no further contact with them in terms of the transactions that they create. And that's a very important uh, distinction, I believe, because you know, from a legal perspective, I'm not involved in any kind of doings beyond that point. It is simply a tool which is put out there into the world. And you know, if somebody uses it for whatever use, um, certainly, I could have had no ability to detect that use, to block it, to do anything with it, because I'm simply not involved. So that's kind of how I think about it. Um, it's not that these concerns don't occur to, to, to me, but I've spent time understanding the legal frameworks around, um, with, around how these things are determined. And, you know, I'm sort of backing or banking, if you will, on the abilities, the ability for developers to still create code. And I think, 
you know, if you, if we take that away, well, then we really have very little indeed. Um, then we have effectively lost in the U.S. the First Amendment, you could argue, um, and the ability to develop on Bit Bitcoin in any reasonable way. Um, so it's a very kind of broad and I think basic um, uh, legal principle on which I work. I'm not, I'm not, as I say, kind of involved on a transactional level on in sort of any of the uh, the activities that Sparrow might be used used for. And that's that's deliberate. Like it sounds like it's deliberate. It sounds like you you have thought it through and like have have the laws and the attitudes towards privacy throughout the world um, legally. Um, has that stuff affected the way you develop and the decisions you made, or it just sort of worked out this way? No, I, it, look, it's, to be honest, uh, I began thinking that way simply because I've spent my entire career maintaining servers, and I simply had enough. I'm done. I'm not going to maintain any servers anymore. So that's certainly where it began. Um, but then as things progressed, I realized the benefit of doing so. Now, I want to say that, you know, I'm very grateful um, for those who do run servers, you know, the public servers that Sparrow connects to and the Whirlpool coordinator run by the Samurai Wallet are invaluable tools. So it's not that I don't see the value in it. I'm, I'm simply not taking on that burden myself. Um, I kind right. of... I, I kind of see um, the contribution that I make is in building this tool and putting it out there. And um, they are very valuable contributions made by others who simply run service servers, who pay for those hosting costs. Um, and they get perhaps a lot less of the limelight, lime but, you know, it's all part of this ecosystem and we're all adding to it. So um, there is, I think, so long as there are people out there who are prepared to take these st steps, steps, and there's always some degree of risk, but I think so long as we spread that risk out as broadly as we can, then it's, it, it effectively becomes a, a lot harder to take any one part of it down. Yeah, that, that's a concern that I have with Whirlpool and with Samurai Wallet. And I, I did a chat like this a couple of weeks ago with Samurai Wallet. And... We talked about that, you know, and I think that um, he he's not especially concerned about it, you know, as far as, at least that's what he voiced to me, as far as the stuff that happened with Tornado Cash and the developers there and the way they were treated. And obviously it's a different situation. Like, you know, there was a token involved with Tornado Cash and a DAO and a bunch of other stupid things um, that Samurai doesn't have to worry about. But at the same time, it is a point of centralization for their product and for your product. Um, not centralization in that, you know, you could really lose money, but in that um, if it goes down, it's down, you know, and then it's gone. And same goes for um, for other coin join implementations too, for the most part, I think. It's the ones that use sequencers like that, right? So, um, but it sounds like you feel comfy, right, in that, you're not necessarily in that position like you, but it, the reason for I'm even asking these questions is because I'm always curious about what kind of sort of side effects the government doing stuff like that has, you know? And it's like, even if you've never had a direct interaction legally or whatever, you know, over this, it's still in your head and it's still like limiting what you might do 
like on a grander scale, right? It's still there's that chilling effect that sort of hampers a little bit, maybe some of the innovation in some places or something like that. And that's something I get concerned about because it's a real issue. Like it could set us back decades as far as where we could really be. Um, do you think that's a fair take? Yeah, I mean, sure. I, I think that, you know, it is, there definitely is a chilling effect um, as a result of the various um, actions that governments around the world take. Um, the way I see it is, is, as I was saying before, there's kind of always a struggle between the kind of far poles of are we heading towards anarchy or are we heading towards a totalitarian state? And, you know, you can, for the most part, you know, people are kind of just just kind of live their lives in the middle and they don't really think about it too much. But then there, there are those who will pull things towards either side. And I think on the long arc of history, we are always aware that there is this struggle going on. So, you know, being part of it, um, I think, is you know, is for whatever reason, giving a lot of people in this world meaning and they see value in what they are, they are doing. And I don't think we ever see an end to it. I don't think one side wins. I just think that, you know, you choose where you want to be and where you want to place yourself and your kind of efforts and how much risk you want to take. And then you act according to that. You know, I'm sort of doing what I believe in, what I think is worthwhile, and so are others. Um, and yeah, sure. I mean, there's, you know, governments take actions based on what they believe to be the right thing. Um, and we don't necessarily agree with it. And we all use the tools that we have to counter them. Um, and that's kind of the way that it goes. And we'll probably go on like that for, for sort of ever, you know. Um, that's, that's in broad strokes how I think, think about, about, about it. I, I try to understand the risks that I'm getting myself into, but also you know, be aware that it's better to um, to have lived with some degree of integrity, of fighting for what you believe in the world that you would like to see, um, and then let others do the same. Yeah, I think that you're a little more optimistic than me, because you said before, you feel like we're heading more towards anarchy than totalitarianism, right? But it's... No, no, uh, I, 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 I believe we'll kind of end up some somewhere in the middle i'm i'm not uh, i'm not saying okay. we're going to head up we're not going to end, end up in one or the other i believe we will probably keep on some somewhere in the middle because that's what history shows us right we have um we've had certainly had more totalitarianism in the world than we do today so maybe you could argue that the long term trend is towards freedom um you know i think that there is an argument there um but i don't ever think that the battle is won you know you you have to fight for what you believe in and the world you want to be in every day if that's important to you. And some 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 people will fight and some will just be happy to live their lives until it affects them. And then they they might choose to to take some action as well. Yeah. It's it's so interesting to think about because it's debatable, I think, whether we've seen more totalitarianism in the past than we do today, that we're better off today when it really depends on what your definition is of if your de definition of totalitarianism is um the government <clears throat> through the tyranny of the majority because that's how governments are formed basically 
<clears throat> excuse me, if the government can decide whether or not on any given day you can get health care, or the government can decide on any given day whether or not you can buy food, we're kind of almost there, right? We're kind of heading into that world where the government controls the money, the government controls the supply, the government controls your access to your own money, which is where we're going with the CBDC concept, and that's where they want to get to, and that's kind of what we're building the rails for inadvertently with a lot of crypto. So it's like, how much more totalitarian can you get than having a government that decides whether or not today you're allowed to go and buy a loaf of bread? You know, I think that even if that's not exercised right away, just them having that ability um, seems like far more totalitarian to me, like total control over your life than anything they were able to do in the past, right? So it's like, it depends on, I feel like we have to shift a little bit what our idea is of what it really means to live under totalitarian rule. Do you think I'm off the rails on this? Well, you know, if, if you go back far enough in history, um, you will find a different form of totalitarianism. So if you are, you know, uh, one of the poorer classes, you know, living in ancient Egypt or the Middle Ages or so, so forth, you know, yes, the, the government might not have direct visibility on your actions, but your ability to change your life is extremely limited, limit, limited. I mean, there was very, very, basically no, no chance. We usually had a extremely strict class system, which has existed in almost all societies until quite recently. And your ability in your life, no matter how hard you try of raising yourself above or into a different class was um, almost non-existent system. So you could argue that, you know, you were living in a sense in a totalitarian system because you had no ability to change your living conditions from day to day to, 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 to day. And if you weren't happy with, um, you know, where you were at, um, which I presume that, you know, most people weren't um, given the fact that they were probably living in, you know, conditions which were unhygienic, um, you know, difficult to find food, all of those those things, um, then, you know, you could argue that we are in a different place today and we are in a better place, you know. But I think that, you know, as you said, these it really depends on how you define these, these things. Um, That's the thing. Like, I feel like we're getting lulled into this new form of totalitarianism, which with the eradication of, of privacy from the government is sort of uh, facilitating, I guess. I'm just looking up like the definition of totalitarian, and I'm not even sure if it's changed over time, but um, what I'm looking at says it's a, um, a system of government where the people have virtually no authority and the state wields absolute control over every aspect of the country, socially, financially, and uh, politically. So when you think about where we're at today and, and sort of um, just going by the definition and maybe not so much even historically what we've seen, but, you know, socially, we already know, at least more in the U.S., I'm not sure how it is in South Africa these days with the woke nonsense, you know, but as far, you know, you, you have to think certain things or you could be fun, you could be punished 
socially. You could be canceled. You could eventually have your money restricted. You know, so socially, yeah. Financially, duh. We all know that. And politically, obviously, like, you know, the president of the United States is, is saying that people on the right are terrorists. You know, so it's like we're, you know, I hear what you're saying. You know, it's like, yeah, I'd rather live my life today than be a slave in ancient Egypt. Yeah, I get it. But at the same time, total control over one's life can still exist, even if you don't, even if you feel happy, even if your belly's full, even if you um, can do your day to day and not really feel like it's that frog in boiling water effect, right? It's like, slowly you lose control. And and I, I'm a firm believer too, that you can have privacy uh, without having control over your life. You know, I think that the government could, could give you, say, we're giving you more privacy by, by doing this or, you know, by giving you decentralized identification or something like that. But at the same time, you don't have control over your own decisions, over the things you do every day. Um, so it's, it's an interesting conversation, you know, as far as where we are, where we're heading and what it's ultimately going to mean. It's like a new form of slavery almost, you know, I think, uh, maybe I go a little more tinfoil hat with some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the frog in boiling water is, is an interesting idea because what, what eventually happens to the, the, Frog, he dies, right? So the kind of analogy right. breaks down a little bit there because assume, assumedly the government's not looking to kill everyone. Um, they're more there's conflicting so, theories know, on that actually, but yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, so so we would assume then that at some point, uh, if we carry this um, thought experiment out to its logical conclusion, that people will eventually get to a point where I say, wait a minute. What has happened here? Presumably, assuming that they they still have the power of independent thought, right? That hasn't been taken away. But at some point, it gets to that stage where they say, "Whoa, you know, we need to rethink think this." And then, hopefully, we we have the tools in place that people can start to use them, even if um, they are not as easy as the tools that they are used to. It will then become more important. And I guess that that's really the the kind of balance uh, between the two sides that I've mentioned, kind of, you know, you have this convenient world that everyone's happy in until it doesn't work for you. And I guess the question is, are we going to reach that point? Or is there some other end, end goal where, as I say, you don't even have the power of independent thought anymore to kind of say, well, my life is not what I thought it should be or wanted it to be. Um, I need to make a change. Um, so that's that's kind of you know, I guess an open question as to where we're heading with this. Um, but, you know, I, I, I tend to think as Bitcoiners, we, we're kind of operating on the fringes of society, looking into the future. We tend to be people who think about the future more than others. Um, and, you know, that gives us a certain, uh, it's a bit of a curse in a way, um, because you're less in the present. But it also gives us this ability to to guess what might be and then to try and prepare for it. So I think that that's what we're doing here is, is trying to um, create a tool which, um, uh, you know, is at least available in the future should the mass require it. Yeah. Did you follow the tornado cash situation as it was happening? It's still happening. Yes, I did. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What um like what implications do you think that that could have or or has had or will have um for the work that you're doing and that Samurai's doing and that uh, Wasabi's doing and stuff on Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean it's it obviously does have impact and there's there's no no doubt that that case does have impact. Um I think that you know really what we are seeing here is you know the testing of how the in particular the US government perceives the kind of um you know non-custodial anonymizing tools you know we have on the one hand the FinCEN guidance which is very clear and FinCEN is a a body with um a lot of swing you know so it's quite reasonable to argue that we should read their guidance and act according to it um i tend to think that the ofac decision was was made in a rushed way um i don't think it was necessarily thought through uh on all of the legal and kind of um you know the the sort of regulatory frameworks were you know thought thought through before that was put in um so we'll have to see whether the courts you know which version they go to and and you know it obviously is a bit more complex than that there's detail which you've mentioned um but i think by and large you know people many people have looked at the indictment and said you know there's a lot in here that simply doesn't make a lot of lot of sense um and hopefully you know that's kind of the the broad theme of what we're seeing we're seeing a lot of um you know uh, legal action being brought and then that legal action kind of once the courts eventually get around to it you know some some degree of sanity returning to the world um and i think that that's i believe a trend we're going to keep on seeing which might to many us citizens seem overly optimistic but um that is never <clears throat> nevertheless the trend that i i see so mm-hmm. um you know that's what you know i do believe that there is still largely a rule of law in in the places that matter and the us is certainly one of the places that matter um and i believe that that rule of law uh will be applied and and what you know we should not fall into the trap of thinking the government is the law they are they are not the law they they do set some laws that's true they do create the or at least the current government does create certain laws but um laws have been created over a long period of time there's a very long legal history that can be drawn upon and uh um i th- i think it's i think we need kind of need to have the patience to see where that journey goes and um what outcomes there are yeah if we learned anything over the past 3 years i think well we learned a lot of things you know throughout the past 3 years but one of the most important is that the tyranny of the majority of the people is actually stronger than the government. You know, and and the government can want to do things, but they can't get a lot of things done without the majority of the people creating that social pressure. You know, and a lot so a lot of the impacts of the of the pandemic throughout the world were the result of um you know, I guess the weak-minded majority that was sort of led in a certain direction and then exercised social pressure, you know, to to make things happen, you know, and then they were assisted by the government and the media and things like that. And I guess that's 
part of my sort of pessimism, I don't want to say total pessimism, but a little bit pessimistic about the future of privacy is that it seems like already the the weak-minded majority sort of like the the you know just I, I say this a lot and I, I'm not really apologetic for it because I, I really do believe that most people just don't think these issues through and are led by the nose by whoever they think is in power. You know, so if it's they think the government's in power, they, they think the media's in power, then fine. And they're being led towards a conclusion that says that if you try to um, hide what you're doing, then you're a criminal. You know, if you um, have nothing to hide, then you have nothing to worry about. How often do we hear that? Right? We hear that like a million times a day. If you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about. You know, and it's like it seems like the weak-minded majority that caused the lockdowns, that caused the the mandates, that caused all the 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 social pressure over masking. They're in the same place on this issue too, as far as restricting freedoms and and stuff like that. So that's why I sort of get. Like, yeah, governments, we could, you know, our our point of view could maybe take over a government um, and start to push things in, in a right direction. But when you look long term, you look over the past like 100, 150 years, we're clearly trending long term. It's like we take, you know, two steps towards that sort of totalitarian um, uh, way of thinking with regard to privacy. And then we take one step back in our direction, but then two steps closer to that direction. So it's like, we just keep on sort of inching closer to a, a world where um, there is no more whirlpool because everybody's too afraid to do it. And there is no more tornado cash attempts because everybody's too afraid. Nobody wants to go to jail or they're already in jail, you know, and there is no more, um, you know, privacy from the government because everybody's forced to use the CBDC. And if you don't use it and you have to, um, you have to, uh, go to jail, you know, if you don't use it because you have to use it. And then you've got, maybe you've got this little island in the South Pacific where Bitcoiners like have gone to like, you know, create their own little economy, but they're looked at as criminals. They're looked at as the enemy and eventually they're just going to get nuked, right? Because at the end of the day, if somebody kills you, none of this matters anymore, right? So that's where my head goes. And um, by the way, people that listen to this podcast always say, well, you, you shouldn't go on so many rants. You should let people talk more. But uh, I, can't, I just can't help it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, yeah, What do you think? I, I kind of, if, if you look back at the advertising that was around in the 1950s, let's say, um, and you look at how... Um, I don't know what there's there's a good English word for it, but it's sort of how obvious it is, how how um, how effectively how gullible the audience must have been in order for them to simply read those messages and take them in. And you look at the kind of advertising that we have have today, and you see that gives us for me a a sort of an ability to see things over a slightly longer period of time. I think that. We are all suffering from recency bias, um, and I think that it colors, you know, our thoughts a huge amount. Um, it's it's like we are um, we are really not rational creatures at all. So you have to try and think outside of your own life lifetime. Um, for me, the trend of advertising has been one where it is getting increasingly hard to convince an increasingly skeptical public that 
of whatever message you are trying to get across. Um, uh, and you've had to be cleverer and cleverer about it. And that will that trend seems like likely to go on. So, you know, I see there a a clear sign that, you know, I, I would I would argue an optimistic sign that people in general have gone from a position of I trust what is being said to me to I'm going to filter this and I'm going to consider it before I just simply take it in and believe it. Now, obviously, there's a huge number of people who are still taking things in. I'm not trying to argue that isn't the case. I'm just trying to say it's got harder. And I think that that is important um, when we consider privacy because, yes, sure, today the majority of people are simply used to being private. You know, it, it is, yes, perhaps not private from your government if you are doing nefarious things. And that's kind of the default of why people have got, got to the conclusion that so many have. But really, um, you know, it's likely that if we are living in a world where we are being surveilled constantly, which is probably the world that we could be headed towards, then it is likely that privacy will be more center of mind. And I think you're seeing that, you know, Apple has built their marketing on this idea of, I can help you be more private. And I'm sure they didn't take that decision without a lot of careful thought to what do people value and what will they value in future. So, uh, you know, there is reason to believe that privacy is going to become a more important thing. I completely agree. I'm not trying to make the argument that it's an important thing today, um, you know, on a sort of a global level. But I do think that there is a reason to be hopeful that over time, over an enough period of time, people will see the benefits of it as they realize that the capabilities of surveillance against them are increasing dramatically. Yeah, it's an interesting point about Apple, you know, in that um, they found a way to to add more privacy features for people like us, um, while while not making while not affecting the usability, right, of the device, which is really a problem with a lot of the other solutions out there. Like, you know, if you you know, God forbid, you want to use graphene or something like that, and you just totally sacrifice usability. Um, but on iOS, it's optional for the most part, um, except, you know, the encryption on iMessages and stuff, I don't think is optional, but the end-to-end -end encryption, I, I would I would guess that, like, the amount of iPhone users that are using the um, advanced security, the encryption on their backups and stuff like that, I bet you it's really low, though. I bet you it's, like, 5%, right? I think it's, like... You, because of the steps you have to take, you have to create that um, a, a private key or seed phrase or something like that, and you have to go through all these steps, and you have to basically take take responsibility and give up um, the conveniences of, of iCloud. Um, I'm the only person I know outside of crypto that's that's using it. How about you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think that you you mentioned the one point there. You know, taking personal responsibility is is this very foreign thing for most pe people in the world, and certainly yeah. I come up against that as you can imagine all the all the time. You know, people. Uh, uh -huh. If I was to onboard somebody to Sparrow for the first first time, who's only ever held on an exchange, you know, there is obviously this point where you know you'd say to them, "Listen, you can't lose these twelve words. If you lose these twelve words, and 
your cold card, for example, you know, your funds are gone. You know, um, that to most people is quite foreign. And I think we've got a long way to, way to go to kind of return people to an idea that they are actually responsible for their own lives. Um, whether we'll get get there or not, again, who knows? Um, but I, I do think it's 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 worthwhile to try because the alternative is is a world where we place all of our trust in a very small set of people who may or may not. I mean, it's 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 really not really even relevant whether they have our best interests at heart. The point is they will never be able to cater towards the specific needs of every person on this planet. It's just it doesn't scale. So, you know, I do think it's it's a worthwhile fight um, to try and convince people to take some responsibility in, in their lives. And there will be various um, tools that will allow you to take, you know, everything from complete responsibility to shared responsibility. Um, and that's great. You know, we need people to go on a journey. Um, it's, it's kind of a little like um, the different kinds of servers you can connect to in Sparrow Wallet. You can connect to your own private Electrum server, which is about as private as you can get. You can connect directly to your Bitcoin core node, um, which is pretty similar. And then you can connect to a public server, which is obviously then you're sharing your transaction information with that server. And, you know, when I first began the Sparrow journey, I was convinced that this was going to be a tool that you could only connect to your own node. There was going to be no other way to do it. And then I realized that what you actually need to do is to take people on a journey. So people, you know, if you were to try and introduce, for example, your neighbor, and you said, well, before you can even hold this currency, you need to have this whole, you need to go and order yourself a Ronin Dojo, you need to set it up, all of these different things. You just wouldn't have any success in trying to convince the majority of people. And if you can instead provide them with a gradual path with certain you know, wins along the way, then you have a much better hope of success of getting them to that end, end goal. And that really is the point, right? We're trying to onboard people. We're trying to get them to take personal responsibility over their money um, and in a more general sense over the privacy in their lives. So, you know, that for me is, I think, you know, there is room for different levels of solutions in it. You know, we can, we can argue whether some solutions should be there at all, but the reality is that they are and people will use them and, you know, we can advise them not to. We can say, well, take your funds off an exchange, as I will always say. But the reality is the, the exchange is there. It is the first port of call for many people as they enter this space. And frankly, without them, they might not have entered it at all. So at least now I have the opportunity to come in and say, well, maybe you need to take your funds off. Maybe you should be using them in a more self-custodial way. And these are the benefits that you will get. And they are already primed to understanding at least the basics of what Bitcoin is, you know, having bought some. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it's not a black and white thing. It's, it's, a, it's a journey and you need to be open to people taking that journey in different ways and over different periods of time, but ultimately having empathy for it and um, for their own kind of personal experiences and how they impact on the decisions that they take. Yeah, I get that. I agree with you. I think, though, that the journey, I guess my big thing is the journey has to start 
with some level of respect for self-custody. Like it has to start with some appreciation for what Bitcoin actually is and what makes it unique and what makes it more than just a speculative uh, investment, right? So it's like you have to, if you're not there, and, and, and with that being said, even me, you know, in 2015, I was messing around with Bitcoin, just I didn't understand it, right? I was using it on Coinbase. I, I, I was basically buying it to spend it on a trip to Asia, you know, spending it on guest houses and stuff like that and food. Um, so I didn't hold it, by the way. I was buying it at $200 and selling it probably at $199. So no, I didn't get rich. Uh, but uh, that was my first step. Um, it wasn't until 2017 that I really appreciated Bitcoin for what it was, you know, as an as a unconfiscatable form of money, that, you know, that's, you know, basically the only way in the world that you could pay somebody anywhere in the world without needing permission of a government. And uh, my concern, I'll tell you my concern. My concern right now is that most people, I think, that hold Bitcoin, um, well, we know this, most people that hold Bitcoin are holding it on an exchange and they don't seem to have any desire or a reason to to take it off the exchange. Now, a certain percentage of them will over time. Uh, maybe, you know, they'll fall down the rabbit hole slowly. But I think that the percentage of people who are just uh, holding Bitcoin as an investment is growing. And uh, that's in, in no small part thanks to the way Bitcoin's been promoted, like, you know, in the, in the, the sort of community sentiment around store value. But here's the bigger issue. The bigger issue is that now we're entering a time where we're going to have ETFs. We've already got GBTC holding tons of Bitcoin. out. So it's not just the exchanges, but it's these other investment vehicles. BlackRock is trying to launch this ETF, right, where it's going to hold potentially billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. And ultimately, at some point, uh, Bitcoin is going to just become what people, what the majority wants it to be, right, what they think it should be. And, you know, I've, I've tweeted about this. It's got some attention, but I do see a future where BlackRock becomes this massive holder of Bitcoin in this ETF. Uh, and it may, maybe it's other companies too. It could be not just BlackRock. It could be 10 different ETF companies that decide, you know what? Um, none of the people holding this ETF care about decentralization because if they did, they wouldn't be holding the ETF in the first place, right? They'd be holding, um, they'd be self-custodying. So let's let's centralize Bitcoin. Let's move it to a proof of stake system that we control. You know, uh, let's call that Bitcoin. Most people that hold the ETF will be fine with that because they can make the case that it's better for them and it's more more regulatory friendly. Uh, they can get the media behind them. They can get the government behind them. They can get the majority behind them. And when you have all those things combined, all of a sudden you have the name. You can take the name with you to your new system. And yeah, me and you will still be be out there like Roger Ver basically like no, this is bitcoin over here. You know, this this thing that was supposed to be 21 million, this thing was supposed to be proof of work, this thing is supposed to be we're still doing that over here. Um but the world will sort of shift off in a different direction because ultimately this whole thing is just about social consensus, right? It's a, it is a social contract to a certain extent. So that's a real concern of mine. I think that the majority not respecting self-custody and not understanding it. If we don't make that the first thing that they 
digest about Bitcoin, it's like we've already lost, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there, there, there is certainly an argument that that might happen. Um, it has, you know, we could, we could argue that the block size uh, wars were similar to that and provide some example of the way it could, could go. Um, you know, my view is that, you know, if, if it happens, there will just be one more fork. Um, and, you know, I was listening to your interview with uh, Lynn Eldon, and I, I think her reply on this was was very to the point. You know, the 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 pros and cons of that fork versus the the sort of original, um, the original um, kind of uh, proof of of work will then stand in the free market and we'll see what people actually want. Um, and you know that's that will be what it will be. Um, the reality is that the majority of the time you have these centralized systems who think they know better for the majority of people doesn't often end up turning out to be the better system because it is so very hard to plan and to determine what is the better system. One of the things that I really like about Bitcoin, and I think is perhaps its most its its strongest attribute of all, is the confidence that we have that the monetary system is not going to change. Now, if you're talking about a fork which would change to proof of stake, which would inflate the supply, which would do all kinds of other things, then you have removed what I believe to be it's one of its major selling points that I think a lot lot of people even if they don't appreciate it when they first get in, certainly come to appreciate um, over time, is just that simple ability to plan and predict what is going to happen into the future, regardless of whether you custody the funds yourself. So, you know, there, there, there is a, and, and of course, that those kind of shilling points will apply to the likes of BlackRock as well. You know, they will see the benefit um, of simply holding on to the current system because they can plan into the future, which all businesses want. They very much want as much certainty into the future as they can. And um, it is uh, ultimately the death of all business is because of change, um, all successful kind of business anyway. So the less change they have, the better. And they want the stability, particularly when it comes to the kind of money that they are using. Um, any instability, any kind of um, that kind of instability that we have in the field world today creates a great deal of cost for every business in the world, and certainly one where you know they can't maybe conceive of a world being different. But I'm sure that many of them would would prefer not to be spending lots of money on forex and have difficulty sending their funds overseas. I know I certainly would running a business. So. Um, uh, that's, you know, I, I think that there are arguments to say that they might change it, but there are also arguments to say that it's in their best interest not to change it. Um, and it's Yeah, almost- but we have to look at what's possible. We have to think adversarially, right? We have to look at, here's how it might go. How could we possibly defend against BlackRock, the government, the media, the majority, hijacking the Bitcoin name, and even potentially saying, if you hold the old Bitcoin, you're now breaking the law. You know, it's like there's all these different outcomes. I, I think that people, uh, too many people stop thinking about Bitcoin at the edges of the actual Bitcoin ecosystem. Like they think about, okay, we have the blockchain, we have the code, we have 
the miners, we have the nodes, we have, you know, this is our little world. But they don't think about the fact that it's basically Bitcoin's like a planet and you could have a, a comet coming straight at it that could just completely blow it up, right? It's like there's a lot of things that could potentially blow up Bitcoin that wouldn't come from within, that would come from the outside. You know, the, the, the most obvious being it just gets outlawed one day and you go to jail if you hold it, right? Like that's like the most obvious um, thing that could potentially impact it. Uh, now, yeah, people would argue against that too. But my my point of view comes from not the side that's like optimistic, like, like yeah, oh, even if that happens, we'll find a way. That's not how I think. How I think is, you know, this could happen. How can we make sure that we can be bulletproof enough? How can we strengthen what we have today enough to the point where we can defend against these kinds of attacks so it doesn't shatter us into a million different pieces? So when I think about this kind of stuff, I see the way the, the world is going. I see the way people think. I see how stupid most people are when it comes to privacy, when it comes to self-sovereignty. Like most people, like 90% of the world doesn't have any concept of what it means to be a free human being as far as like thinking for yourself, you know, not relying on third parties, not relying on governments, not relying on banks. And there's just no, most people don't even know central banks exist, right? They just go out, buy their McDonald's, you know, have, go to the park sit there, go watch some TV, go home. You know, it's like they use their cell phone, they forget how they pay for it. They turn on Netflix, you know, they get mad when their show's not there. Um, go to bed, wake up, do it again. You know, or they, they, they work for, you know, the government and they go to work and, and they expect something, they expect this, they expect that. Um, I mean, people freaking, we're in a world where people download an app on their phone. They have no job, right? They're sitting there. They got no job. They download an app on their phone that lets them drive their car and connect them with people to get in the backseat of their car, drive them from their house to, to Burger King. Uh, and then those people who just downloaded an app go on strike and demand higher wages. <laughs> it's like we, we live in this like crazy world where people have no concept of, of like of reality. So I do not expect most people to value the stuff we value. You know, so it's like what I want to think more about is how do we put up this force field around this planet Bitcoin? that'll deflect all this stuff that's definitely going to come our way, all these asteroids and comets and meteorites, because Bitcoin's the best chance we have, I think, right now for a free financial future, right? And it's like, if one of those things hits, even if we shield you know, against 100 of them, one of them gets through, whether it's BlackRock or something else, it could just impact that level of freedom that we want to offer for a very long time. And so just long story short, that's why I'm so against sort of people that are out there saying, you know, oh, it's fine to start with um, custody. It's fine to just let people buy Bitcoin on exchange. We'll eventually get them off. Yeah, you'll get 5% of them off, but the other 95% are going to turn into your worst nightmare, you know, in 5, 10, 20 years when they're trying to, to fork away or they're trying, you know, nobody cares about decentralization and they're just trying to number go up, you know, let's go proof of stake. So, yeah, yeah, I get a little tinfoil hatty and conspiracy theorist, but that's just who, you know, that's how I do I, it. I think, I think uh, you know, one of the mistakes we can make when trying to predict into the future is taking our current world and saying, well, only one aspect of it is going to change. But it's likely that actually 
much more than that will change. Um, so, you know, what people believe is important in the future isn't likely not to be the case of what they think is important now. And the other thing is, you know, I think that, you know, we can all see um, as Bitcoiners that this grand fiat experiment that the world has embarked upon is not doing so well and is likely to uh, come to some kind of conclusion probably sooner rather than later. So, you know, what does the world look like and what do people value on the back of that? Because if that is uh, truly um, as dire as some would, would, would you know, as, as, it, as if we are in such a debt-laden world and that debt can never be paid back and the only way to deal with that fact is to inflate the money away. Um, and what effect does that have? on the world what what kind of chaos does that bring how does that change people's views on what is money and will they care about what a central bank is if the inflation is 20 30 40 percent i can assure you that argentinians know what a central bank is um uh, you know that's why this um uh, presidential candidate has received the votes that he has so it's 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 just a matter of of what is important. And currently in the US right now, it's simply not that important. That is just the truth of it. And that's why, Chris, you are seeing what you're seeing and feeling the way that you are, is because, you know, it's simply the honest truth is it's just not that important. You have a fairly uh, good financial system and it will likely be the last to fail. So, you know, but there are plenty of other places in the, in the world who, you know, I'm not saying that they know what Bitcoin is, it's still very small, but certainly they feel the need for some something better, right? They're looking for something better than what they have access to today. And um, I think that we're in very early Bitcoin days, days here. That's in fact a general thing. Most of the takes I see on Bitcoin uh, are, in my view, just far too early um, to know. But I think that, you know, when we try and predict into the future, A, it's very hard to know really where where we're going on on sort of a medium to long-term basis it's extremely hard to be able to predict that far far out um and secondly you know we just we're really beginning this journey now and there's a, a lot of education that is required so you know you were saying well what can we do to protect against this asteroid well i think the best thing we can do is to educate i i really do and uh, you know there are Bitcoin educators uh, around this world who are doing great work, who are not necessarily all that well known, even within the Bitcoin community, but they they are educating thousands of people um, around what is Bitcoin, why is it important, what makes it different. Um, those That's, in my view, the work that really um, needs to happen in order for us to have a chance of this being the freedom money that we hope it will be. Yeah. And I think I think um, having these conversations too, I think, is really important. You know, I think um, my my philosophy on that is, yeah, I mean, obviously, the educators in the space are critical, and and it's the way I learned, and um, I think it's all very very important. And what I try to do with this and with other stuff is have the uncomfortable conversations about the grander sort of world that we live in, you know, and how it could affect us and to look at Bitcoin as a planet with asteroids and comets coming at it and 
think about it from that more philosophical point of view, because I feel like in the long term, that's the way like Bitcoin is always going to exist in a real world with real guns and real jails and real tyrants, right? It's like it's always going to exist in that world. So in the longer term, as Bitcoin gets more important and gets more powerful, it's going to have to fend off more of those attacks, the real world attacks from the outside. So I'm hoping that by having conversations like this with people like you who really understand this stuff and who really um, have thought it through, that it'll give people, people need to think about it just more holistically, you know, more in a grander context, I think, for us to really have the survival that we want. You know, I think, yeah, it's one thing to really understand Bitcoin within that ecosystem, but then it's almost like the it's like the graduate program, right? It's like first you understand Bitcoin, that's that's undergrad. And then, you know, the the graduate the master's degree is like understanding how Bitcoin can survive in the real world. Yeah, it's like that's that's sort of where we have to go with it, I think, because if we don't, we're just gonna get caught off guard one day and just kind of that comet's gonna come. We're just not gonna be ready. But well listen, man, um, I've kept you over time, but I really appreciate you being here. How do you, by the way, how do you make money? Do you do you get donations or what is it money-wise? Yeah, yeah. There's um, certainly, you can donate sparrowwallet.com. Um, there are some fees from Whirlpool World, World, that help. Um, but as I say, it, 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 it really is an open source project. It's not a business. I'm not trying to make it into one. I'm grateful for every donation that I get. Um, for me, it's it's a sign that people value the tool and value what it brings to their lives and are prepared to part with their hard-earned sats um, uh, to show their appreciation for what I do. So I certainly value it um, more than perhaps most. Yeah. Okay. So every Bitcoiner who's listening to this, if you've never used Sparrow, go download it and use it. And um, it replaces ledger live it replaces tools that you're using with your hardware wallets um for the most part you still need ledger live to like do uh, firmware updates and stuff like that but as far as your, your transactions it's a way better way to use those kind of tools you can obviously have software hot wallets as well um so i i recommend just downloading it playing with it trying it out um if you've never whirlpooled get into that world um run your own node obviously ronin dojo is one way to go um, there's others out there or you could build your own. And, uh, if you go to Sparrow Wallet's website, you can also jump into their telegram and just keep that open in your app and, uh, ask questions there. I know Craig's there a lot and there's others in there too, uh, who answer questions. And, uh, it's just a really good community, good ecosystem, uh, which is rare in this space these days, but it just, it just feels good. You know, it's, it's one of those, uh, everybody's there for the right reasons. So that's why I appreciate it. But Craig, thanks for joining me today. Maybe we should do this again sometime. Awesome, Chris. It's been great to chat.